Friend, you need to understand that. I expect in a, in a group this size, there's at least one or two folks. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. Boy, you deal with guilt and shame. You need to be reminded that when you put it under the blood, Jesus washed it away. Because Calvary covers it all. Can I, can I tell you something? Calvary can't cover any of it if it can't cover all of it. What, 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 what are you hanging on to today that, that's, that's causing you sleepless nights, that's causing you guilt? Because God's, God's put it away. Don't do that to yourself. I'm glad Calvary covers it all. Let me tell you something. If you knew everything that there was to know about me, you wouldn't call me to be your pastor. But if I knew everything there was to know about you, I wouldn't want it to come. Aren't you glad? That's not something we need to be concerned with because Calvary has covered it all. If any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creature. Now, we understand that, that temporally speaking on, on earth, there are certain things that there are, you know, there are consequences for. You kill somebody, there's consequences for that, right? At least it used to be. Used to be. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritually. God's not holding a bit of it against you. There's guys right now on death row that have given their lives to Jesus Christ. You know how God sees them? Same way he sees us. The righteousness of Jesus Christ covers all of that. And when they, when they get to heaven, it won't be, hey, there's that murderer that God said. No, there's that child of God. <laughs> Thief on the cross. When I meet him, when I meet him, I won't meet him as a thief on the cross. I'll meet him as a brother in Christ. So whatever, whatever's hanging over you, just, just, let me just give you some really good, profound advice. Stop it. Just quit. Because God's forgiven you. Aren't you glad for that? Man, aren't you glad for that? We're in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians 13. I appreciate it. I reached out last night and asked folks to be praying for me, and uh, many of you indicated that you were, and I thank you for that. Uh, just periodically, periodically, I just I wrestle with the text. I know that's where I'm supposed to be. I'm just, uh, I just struggle with what to do with it. Lord, how do you want me to bring this thing? How do you want me to preach it? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to not say? Uh, sometimes outlines just pop out like nothing, and sometimes... It's it's tough hose to to row, you know. Um, so I I trust that I'm following the Lord and minding Him. We're going to be in Lord willing First Corinthians this morning and tonight, uh, looking at two perspectives. When you look at First Corinthians thirteen, most readers of Scripture, even those that maybe aren't as in-depth as others, you recognize this chapter is the great chapter on love. Most translations use the word love as opposed to charity. And by the way, that's, that's using love. As, if you read it and, and you think the word love instead of charity, that's okay because that's, that's what it means. But aside from its inclusion in many wedding ceremonies, most read 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 30, see, that's, a, that's what kind of trouble I've been in this week. 
Most glance over it and they might offer a half-hearted intention to love God and others more deeply and then they move on. But if you, if you really inspect this chapter, you find that it's what we call an anchor chapter. Meaning the chapters before and after it, chapters 12 and 14, are fixed to it. You don't understand chapter 12 and chapter 14 without chapter 13. It's helpful to be reminded that the original writings were not divided chapter and verse. This was a letter, an entire letter to the church at Corinth, the first of two inspired letters. Paul sent others, but the first of two inspired letters that Paul sent to this church. And so sometimes, while scripture is inspired, sometimes well, the well-meaning people that divide it into chapter and verse, sometimes they got it wrong. Sometimes you have thoughts that are divided that shouldn't be. So without chapter 13, chapter 12 and chapter 14 are in trouble. So this is an important chapter. It's not just a great wedding passage. There's much more going on here. He's instructing the church at Corinth regarding the importance and proper use of spiritual gifts. Did you know that the moment you get saved, every one of us is imparted by the Holy Spirit with at least one spiritual gift? Well, I'm not very gifted. Well, you're at least one gifted. At the very least, the Holy Spirit has imparted to you one spiritual gift. But, but Paul goes a little bit further than that. He, uh, he is specifically dealing with the abuse and ultimately the removal of what are called sign gifts. Now, what, what is a sign gift? A sign gift was a special type of spiritual gift. It was temporary, and it was meant to be the credentials of the young church to the lost world around them. These were gifts like speaking in tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, and healings. Now, does God still give some people an unusual ability to learn new languages? Yeah, he does. Does God still heal people? Yeah, he does. Does God still give people insight? Yes, he does. But what he doesn't do is give somebody something beyond what his word says. See, What he doesn't do is make healing conditional on the faith of the person and the hands of the preacher. He doesn't do it that way anymore. See, these were sign gifts. These were these were meant because think about it. If you're going to come out and you're going to tell people everything you believed is over, hey Jews, everything you held to in the law, Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. Hey, those of you over here following Greek. Uh, false religion, Roman false religion, territorial false religion, everything you believe is wrong. If you're going to do that, then you better have something to back it up. So what did they have? Tongues, healings, words of knowledge, things like that. But these were temporary. These were temporary. Because what happened was, ultimately they would give way to the ultimate badge of heavenly truth and power. What do I mean by that? As you listen to me, here's how you know I'm telling you the truth. It is not by my ability to heal. I don't possess that. It is not by a word of knowledge. I don't possess an ability to see things beyond that which is apparent. I have no idea what Brother Davies is thinking right now. I could guess... 
And there's going to come a point that he's probably going to be thinking, man, that roast smelled good in the kitchen. I'll just soon get to it. You know, things like that. I can guess that, but I can't know. I can't perform miracles. And neither can you. Here's how you know I'm telling you the truth. Does it match up to this book right here? You see, God now uses his word as it is illuminated by his Holy Spirit to give us all the credential that we need. How do I know he's telling the truth? Well, I'll tell you, he was able to do this and he was able to do it. None of that matters. Did it line up with this book? And if it lines up with this book, then it's true. By the way, that's how people can still get saved under sorry, no good, unsaved preachers too. Because God doesn't bless the man, he blesses his word. See. Now, these 13 verses, there's a whole lot to unpack. But for the next two messages, this morning and tonight, we want to approach 1 Corinthians 13 from a perspective that we've been looking at a lot lately, especially on Wednesday nights. I cannot, I cannot get away from this tractor beam that God has on my life concerning the subject of revival. What do I mean by revival? I mean when God's people start obeying God's word again. When you have the manifest presence of the power of God. What does this chapter tell us? as it relates to a, to a return to a normal, victorious, Bible-saturated, impactful, obedient, Christ-exalting Christianity. Now, if we take a bird's-eye view, we're going to see two ingredients that are glaringly absent from the lives of many Christians, perhaps even sitting in here, myself included, from the lives of many Christians individually and absent from their churches corporately. There's two things that are missing. Number one is proper motivation. Many of us don't see revival because we don't have proper motivation. Number two, many of us and many of our churches don't see revival because we are lacking personal maturity. Personal maturity. Maturity. Where does that come from? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. You remember when Paul said, when I was a child, I spake as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away what? Childish things. Hey, Christian, some of us are never going to see revival until we get enough gumption to put away the childish things in our lives. Oh, it's wonderful to be childlike in our faith, but we dare not be childish in our faith. And there's a big difference. And Lord willing, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Hopefully that doesn't cause you to want to stay home. But this morning, we want to talk about proper motivation. Why are we not seeing the great moves of God like we once did? What do we lack in pursuit of real revival? We are operating without proper motivation, and we are deficient of personal maturity. But if we can, with God's help, be properly motivated and find ourselves maturing in our faith and all all that that entails, we will see God do amazing things in our lives individually and corporately. So this morning, we begin the first of two messages looking to 1 Corinthians 13 to to discover revival's missing ingredients. Revival's missing ingredients. Father, would you help us now? I sure do need your help. 
Lord, I've labored in this passage more than I've labored in a long time. And if I'm honest with you, Lord, I am still lacking a great deal of confidence. And Lord, I lack no confidence in your word and in the message of your word and in the power of your word. Oh, Lord, I'm just not very confident in my ability to proclaim it effectively. Sometimes it is very clear to me what a weak and foolish person I can be. But I am so grateful that you have said clearly that you use weak things. And you use foolish things. That you confound the wise. So, Lord, I don't mean this as some kind of Baptist watchword. I truly ask this morning that you move me out of the way. And that I would just preach your word as it's written. And that the Holy Spirit would illuminate it in our hearts. Lord, there's got to be somebody in this crowd that's lost. What a terrible thing it would be to sit under the gospel and leave here lost and undone. Lord, would you bring them under heavy conviction and may they come to Jesus today. Maybe they're not here. Maybe they're at home watching. Maybe they're at work. Maybe they're members of families that are represented here. Holy Ghost, please, Lord, lay thick on every one of them and make them want to be saved. And for us Christians, may the message be pointed and clear, and may we respond appropriately. And in all of this, may Jesus be made much of and lifted up. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. So we begin this morning with the proper motivation. Revival is missing the ingredient of proper motivation. Now, if I were to ask you what, in one word, what you think that motivation is based on what we've read, what would you say it is? Chickens, every one of you. What would you say? <laughs> It is. What did we just read about in 1 Corinthians 13? How about love? How about love? Now, for those that don't know, I am an independent, fundamental, King James toting, mad at everybody Baptist. Or so I'm told. I grew up in that kind of mindset. What I've tried to do over the years is just become intensely biblical and let that fall where it may. So call me whatever you want to call me, but if you call me biblical and balanced, that's what I really want to hear. And this kind of thing makes other fundamentals, fundamentalists nervous because you hear about somebody preaching about love and immediately your mind goes to those preacher wannabes that never call out sin, that never want to say anything's right or wrong. They just smile at you and pass the plate. But beloved, if we're going to have a balanced view of God, you can't do that 
without love. And if I'm to preach the whole counsel of God, I must not be afraid to preach on love, no matter what my more sanctified, more pious brethren might call me. Love. Now, what do we mean when we talk about love? If we're going to look at love, we've got to define it, don't we? Now, in Koine Greek, which is the language in which the New Testament was originally written, there are five words used for love. Many of you have heard these already. Only two of them are prominently featured in the Bible. The first three were prominent in Koine Greek, and I'll give them to you just so you know. You have thelos. Thelos, which literally means a wish. We would, we would use it like this. I sure would love to do this. Okay, that's number one. To my knowledge, that's not used at all in Scripture. Then you have eros. Eros is the physical expression of love, primarily that which should only be expressed within the bounds of a God-ordained marriage. Okay? All right, then, and that's not used in Scripture either. Then you've got storge, which maybe the word isn't used, but the idea is used in Scripture. Storge is a compassionate, feely kind of love, particularly for that which doesn't belong to you. For instance, a puppy. Oh, that feeling you get, that storge, love. Like, like my little amen corner over here, Georgia. Every time I see Georgia, I get this feeling, oh, Georgia's my buddy, but she's not mine. She's somebody else's. So I can get her all cranked up, and then she's mommy's problem. See? <laughs> see? That's storge love. Now, I'm not saying that I couldn't, I couldn't use other forms of love towards that precious little girl, but that's what storge means. You know. But the two that you see in Scripture... The first one's phileo. Phileo is a familial love. It's the love within family, but it's also the love that exists with people who aren't family but love each other like they are. In fact, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then there's agape. Agape is a love that is sacrificial, volitional, undeserved. It is a choice. It is the highest form of love. It is not based on feelings. And it is the love most closely associated with God. In fact, when you read John's writings, Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation, almost exclusively when he uses the word love, he uses agape. There are a couple of times he uses phileo. For instance, when Jesus and Peter are talking, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? The exchange back and forth, he does use agape and phileo back and forth. But the vast majority of the time, in fact, you can almost be sure when you see love in John's writings, he's talking about agape. The highest form of love. So when we talk about love this morning, we're talking about agape love. We're talking about the love that God has for us. We're talking about the love that God has had for the world, even though the world didn't return it. A love that, a love that would be characterized by Jesus saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's love defined. Then number two, love described. In verses 4 through 8, Paul gives us 16 descriptions 
of this kind of love. Now, I'm going to move through these really quickly, okay, because they're not the, the, the push of the message. Uh, don't try to write them down unless you are a, you know, shorthand expert, all right? But as you listen, this is the kind of things that should characterize our love for one another and for Christ, okay? First of all, it suffereth long. That means it's patient. It's not short-tempered. It's kind. That means it's not coarse. It envieth not. It's content. It vaunteth not itself. It's not outwardly braggart. It's not puffed up. It's not inwardly arrogant. It doth not behave itself unseemly. It isn't rude. By the way, Christians, there's no room for us to be rude. Be bold. Be firm in what you believe. But there's never a reason to be rude. You hear me, Christians? I'm not saying you, but you know as good well as I do. There's some Christians out there just they're, they're just rude to people. And if you're going to be rude to somebody at the restaurant, don't you dare leave a track. Don't you do it. This isn't right. Can you send that? I need this and this. And, and it's one thing to want to get what you ordered. But, you know, we can be rude about that kind of thing, can't we? And then we leave a sorry tip and say, come to fellowship. Don't you do it. I've told you before, if you're going to do that, give them one of Royal Retreat's tracks. It's not rude. Seeketh not her own. It's selfless. Not easily provoked. It's not irritable. Man alive, that's one I got to work on. Real love isn't irritable. It thinketh no evil. It's not grudge prone. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. It doesn't justify wrong behavior. Rejoiceth in truth. Truth, it's never deceptive. Beareth all things. It accepts responsibility. Believeth all things. It's full of faith. Hopeth all things. It's optimistic. Endureth all things. It never, never quits. And it says charity never faileth. That means it has no limits. This is love described. We've defined agape. We've described agape, but what best demonstrates agape? Can I give you some verses real quick? John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's agape love. How about this one? 1 John 4, 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How about Romans 5, 8? But God commendeth his what? Love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Perhaps the greatest single example of agape love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, we could say that all of this thus far has been introductory. We've defined love, we've described love, and we've seen how love has been demonstrated. Now, here's, here's where we start to dig into the so what. Love has been defined, described, demonstrated. Did you know that for the Christian, love is demanded? Well, preacher, I'm just not much of a loving person. Well, you need to get over that because God demands it of us. 
By the way, he has every right to demand of us anything he wants. God is the sovereign creator of the universe, and what he says goes. Doesn't matter how we feel about it. Love has been demanded. If you're saved here today, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, it is God's expectation that love characterize your life. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is right out of the gate. What? Love. The very first one. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Right first thing, and I do think there's something to the order of things in most places in Scripture, and the first thing we see is love. Okay, can I just tell you something? I talked about being an independent, fundamental, King James Bible, toting mad at everybody Baptist. I say that jokingly. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the fact is I am kind of had a belly full of that foolishness. Now, it's easy for us to say this is a cop-out and everything else, but there's a whole lot of people out there that are far away from the Lord or never came to know him because somebody lost sight of love. Oh, man, I'm going to tell you, they could preach up a storm. And they could, they could move masses to the altar. And they had all sorts of good sayings and illustrations and jokes and everything else. But they went scorched earth on it and burn up a lot of people because the one thing that was missing was love. Well, preacher, I think the best way to love somebody is to be doctrinally sound and rip it right straight at them. Well, the very first church that Jesus speaks to in Revelation is the church at Ephesus. And he commends their doctrine and he commends their fervor. But you know what he says? He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. You've left your first love. Jesus is displeased. Y'all, we don't, we don't have to choose one or the other. We don't have to choose fervor and doctrine or love. We can do it all. Speak the truth in love. It's demanded of us. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. Know that word walk means? It means that's how you live. Walk in love. As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling savor. John 15, 9, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And yet, let's be honest. Church-going people can be some of the most hateful people you ever met. Mm. I'm not mad at you, folks, but now you're starting to see why I labored with this text. How in the world do we expect to win people to Jesus if we give the impression that our faith is the worst thing to ever happen to us? And we're just bitter and mad and defeated and everything else. Now, are there times, have there been times even in my own ministry that the Holy Ghost directed me to deal with somebody a little more harshly than I would be comfortable with? 
I have sat in that room right there, and I have looked a man in the eye and said, listen, bud, I love you and I'm for you, but if you don't get right with God, if you don't come to Jesus as your Savior, you are going to knock the bottom out of hell. Do you understand that? You are dead in your trespasses and your sins, and if you don't come to Jesus, you are going to burn for all eternity. And I had to be that blunt. I had to be that direct. But I didn't want to be. Any preacher that rolls up into his church on a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, a Wednesday night, a revival meeting, and he says, well, going to tan some hide tonight. I can't wait. That man's a fool. I said it. He's a fool. Does it happen sometimes? Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've sat over a text and sat over a message and begged God not to make me preach it. Love is demanded of us. We do not have an option. But again, I'm just not a very loving person. Then change. Well, I am who I am. All right. Then, then lay off the LGBT crowd then. You don't let them get away with it, do you? We are who we are. No, you're not. God didn't make you that way. Guess what? God didn't make you that way either. I'm just not loving. God didn't make you like that. Those of you who don't know, that's a truth grenade. So that brings us to the last point, and you're looking at 1156, and you're saying, amen, but you know how long my last points can be. <sighs> love defined, love described, love demonstrated, love demanded. But lastly, I want to look at love's distinction. What do I mean by that? How important is agape love? How important is it that we show love? How important is it that we live and walk in love? Can I remind you that love for God and others should be the chief motive for all that we do? Oh, there he goes. He sounds like our buddy over in Houston. Just love God and love each other. But can I remind you that's actually biblical? You know who said it? Jesus said it. Do you remember the lawyer that came to Jesus? Matthew twenty two thirty five. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All of it is summed up in loving God and loving others as yourself. And you know as well as I do, if we loved God supremely and we loved others as ourselves, we'd be in a whole lot better shape than what we are. What makes it so important? Love's distinction. But you know what happens? We talked about this Wednesday night. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, sometimes we Baptists are so afraid of being called Pentecostal or Charismatic, we don't talk about the Holy Spirit. But I got news for you. You're not getting anywhere without the Holy Spirit. You're not getting anything done without the Holy Spirit. 
And we need to be careful that we're not so scared of being called this group over here or that group over there that we leave out entire sections of our Christianity. And the same is true of love. We're scared of being called, here's a great term for you, we're scared of being called antinomian. What's antinomian mean? Well, we're saved, and because of grace, we can do anything we want. Nothing matters, and God just overlooks everything, and we can just live as free as we... That's antinomianism, and you know as well as I do, that is not what the Bible teaches. But we're so scared of being called that crowd that we don't want to talk about the love of God. But I got news for you. We'd be in mighty bad shape were it not for the love of God. It was not God's holiness that motivated him to save me. It was his love. His holiness motivated him to cast me into hell. So as thankful as I am for his holiness and that one day I will possess it too, I sure am grateful for his love, aren't you? Amen. Love is always, oh, wait a minute. Let me, let me prove what I just said about not being called antinomian. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. That about covers it, doesn't it? You see, love is always the highest motive in all situations. What motivates you? Sometimes we're motivated by fear, aren't we? When I was a kid, I was motivated by consequence. And yes, that did translate into fear. By the way, God delivers from kids that aren't afraid of their parents, and God delivers from parents that don't strike fear into their kids. Hmm. Sometimes we're motivated by gain. Sometimes we're motivated by compulsion. I'll tell you, a great motivator is duty. I'm motivated by duty. This is what I should do. But how would you feel? If everything your dad did for you was because he felt a duty to do so, he just didn't love you. That'd be tough, wouldn't it? Do I have a duty to take care of my kids? I sure do. Do I have a duty to see to it my wife is taken care of? I sure do. And if that is devoid of love, then I've missed it. So why is love so important? Because Paul tells, it, tells us it does three things for our identity. It does three things for our identity. I want you to look at it real quick and we're done. Verse 1, first of all, it is love that Christianizes our identity. Christianizes, watch. Verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Do you know what that sounding brass and that tinkling cymbal was? That was the common instrument used in the false worship of Corinth. And what Paul is saying here is he is saying, if there's no love, it doesn't matter if I speak with the tongues of men or I speak with the tongues of some heavenly language of angels. If I don't have love, there is no difference with, between me and the sounds coming out of the pagan temples here in Corinth. What do we take from that? Without agape love, there is nothing to distinguish us from paganism. But but without love, I mean, I mean, people's lives get better, don't they? Even if we don't have love, people's lives get better. I got news for you. The Mormons live pretty clean lives. Don't they? Yeah. But 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 even if we don't show enough love, I mean, I mean, we can we can come up with good cooperative movements that take care of people's needs and provide health. You know what? United Way does that. 
What distinguishes us from everything else, including the pagan? It's love. Real love. You understand the world hasn't defined love correctly in a long, long time. Most of what the world calls love is lust. We're talking about love. It Christianizes our identity. You know what else it does? It confirms our identity. It confirms who I am. Verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Now get what he's saying here. Here's somebody that has mastered the use of the word of God. He understands and has insight into all its mysteries. He has all kinds of knowledge. He has all kinds of faith. I mean, this guy is the model believer. He says, but if I have not charity, if I have not love, it doesn't say I can do nothing. What does it say? I am nothing. All of these things are ultimately useless without love. Can I give you another passage that undergirds what we're talking about here? It confirms our identity. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name have done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. I'm thinking about a fellow right now. I wouldn't call his name because I don't know his heart, but I'll tell you what I see. I see somebody who's got a good command of the Scriptures, knows how to use it, can put on a really good show, and seems to be able to perform some pretty great things. And there's no love within a thousand miles of that guy's personality. Makes me wonder. You see, love Christianizes our identity. It confirms our identity. You know what else it does? It capitalizes on our identity. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. All the compassionate acts in the world are without profit, apart from being motivated by agape love. I know preachers, and they live martyrdom. They drive around in beat-up vehicles, wearing hand-me-down clothes. Their churches are run down, and they'll tell you it's because they preach the truth. And that does happen from time to time, but they'll, they'll tell you it's because I just won't compromise. I just won't get along with people. And they're just mean as snakes. And they've been martyred their whole lives. You know what? They're going to get to heaven. They're going to find out that without love, all of that profited them nothing. Nothing. I'm thinking of Christians, parents, whose kids went the wrong way. And instead of praying for them and loving them and trying to draw them back to the Savior, they dug their heels in and they maintained their godly posture. And they basically just kicked those kids out of their lives. 
and they're going to get to heaven. You know what they're going to find out? You didn't have any love. I'm not saying you endorse what they did. You didn't have any love. Guess what? It profited you nothing. Those fellows that flew into the side of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and that field in Pennsylvania, they weren't motivated by love. But they were martyrs for their faith. You know what they found out? It profited them nothing. How about Mother Teresa? Boy, this is where you get dangerous. Are you telling me Mother Teresa died and went to hell? I'm telling you if she believed her Catholic faith instead of Jesus Christ and his finished work for her salvation, all of that work she did in India with the poor was for nothing. What about Pope John Paul II? Good man. I hope he trusted Christ. See, it's not about your Catholicism or your Methodism or your Baptist or your Episcopalianism. I'm trying to tell you it's not about your denomination. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone in his death, burial, and resurrection. Does that mean there's some Catholics going to get into heaven? Yeah, because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Does that mean there's some Baptists that won't? Yeah, because they didn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not denominational. The gospel is about whether or not you have realized you are a sinner in need of a Savior and you trusted Christ and Him alone to take care of your sins through His death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. And I don't care what kind of martyrdom you went through or what kind of sacrifices you went through, if it was not bathed in the agape love of Jesus Christ, it was for nothing. It capitalizes on our identity. There's profit. All right? So what? If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, this is what this message is meant to do for you. This is what I want to rattle around in your head and in your heart, hopefully not for very long, because I hope this draws you to the Savior. Your best efforts, all the faith, all the good works are useless for eternity if they are not founded upon the agape love of Jesus Christ. Hear me, whether you're here, watching online, whatever. I am not asking you to join this church or to bear the name of Baptist or to fill out paperwork or to get in that baptistry. I'm not asking any of that of you. If you never darken the door of this place again, I hope you do, but if you don't, all that I'm asking you to do is leave here knowing that you're going to heaven. That's it. Jesus did not die to make you Baptist, and he does not live to make you like me. He died so you'd be a child of God like him. He lives that you might be saved. And right now, if you've never been saved, the Holy Ghost is beginning to tap at your heart. If you're asking yourself, is this for me? It's for you. 
You know what he's telling you? I brought you here on this divine appointment for this moment to trust Jesus as your Savior. You are not here on accident. God set this up. God set you up that you might be saved. Please don't let this go to waste. Because the truth is, I'm not using a scare tactic. I'm telling you the truth. If you reject Jesus today, he may never come calling again. So what do I suggest you do? When we have this time of invitation, heads will be bowed, eyes will be closed. I suggest you just step right out here in this aisle. And you get my attention. If you're a lady, I'll grab a lady. If you're a gentleman, I'll grab a gentleman. They'll take you somewhere private and show you through a Bible how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. I plead with you, be saved today. Christian, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven. What's your so what? Ask yourself this question. I've had to ask myself this. Why do you do what you do? I'll tell you a secret. Me and Aaron get paid to be here. Do you know that? Yeah. If the economy collapsed and we couldn't do this anymore for, for a living, would we still be here? Why do you do what you do? Is it out of duty? Is it for gain? Is it out of fear? Is it because of consequence? Or is it out of love? Why do you correct your children? Well, I don't want to be embarrassed by them. Then that's not the highest motive. It ought to be because of love. Why do you stick with your spouse? Because it's cheaper to keep her. That may be true, but I got news for you, friend. That's not your highest and best motive. You know why my wife's still with me? I'll tell you why. Agape love. Because I can't tell you how many. She won't tell you this, but I'll tell you this. There's been plenty of times that I've been unlovable. There's been plenty of times that I've not been all that I should be. And somebody without the power of God on her life would have said, you know what, you're not worth this effort. Good night, Andy. Why, why are you the way you are sometimes? Why does she stay with me? Because she made a decision October 10th, 2009 that she was going to love me no matter what. That's agape love. Why do you do what you do? If the answer to that is anything but love, we got some work to do. What drives you? Can I offer you a suggestion? Maybe you need to come to an altar, make an altar right there at your pew, and you need to say, God, by your grace, I decide today I will love you and I will love others no matter what. Because without love, there's no difference between me and the best efforts of the world. You remember I told you that sometimes we divide chapters where they shouldn't. 
we see this in this passage. Because you know what Paul says right before 1 Corinthians 13? Look at chapter 12, verse 31. But covet, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. What's that way? Love. How does this manifest itself? Isn't it wonderful? And I don't mean to be unkind, and I don't mean to be disrespectful of anybody that's come before me. I stand on the shoulders of everybody that stood in that pulpit. I hope you understand I feel that way. I do. Twelve years ago when we came here, let me tell you what I heard more than anything from people in this community. Fellowship, you go to fellowship. That's where the ladies don't wear britches. Now, if that is your conviction, praise the Lord, and you live according to the convictions of the Word of God as, as, as God has revealed them to you, you got no problem with me. But you do understand that's not what we should be known for. That's where they don't go to movies. If someone were to ask me, do I think it's a bad idea to go to the movie theater? I would say yes, but not for the reasons you think. Why in the world you'd want to pay eight bucks for popcorn and twelve bucks to watch a movie that you can see for free on Netflix? I don't know why you'd do it. It seems to me that's dumb fiscal decisions there. And can I tell you something, friend? I don't really have any respect for somebody that doesn't go to the movie theater, but they'll watch garbage at home. Yeah. See. It's about what you put in your gates, not where you put it in. What what is the wonderful thing if when where are you from? I'm from Fellowship Baptist Church. Oh, can I tell you something? I visited there one time and we're in a good church, but I visited there one time. Can I just tell you, your people were so friendly. Man, I tell you, that's a loving group of people there. They helped me out when I needed some help. That's what we're after. Listen, if we stand doctrinally where we should, there'll be, there'll be opportunities for us to take people off. That'll happen. But let me tell you what I've heard people say before. I don't agree with where they're at on some things, and I think that they're, they're wrong on some things, but I'll tell you, I can't debate the fact that that person at fellowship loves me. So let's take that and look at that individually. Where's your love? Because you know what? That may be the missing ingredient to our revival. 